funneling all your energy into this single divine point. And, and the ideal is to get absorbed by it. So if your single focus is love, there's a point when there is nothing else but love. Mm. And if your focus point is peace, then there is nothing but peace. And the opposite is true as well. If your focus point is hate, and you know, there's a point when there is nothing but hate. Hey there, everybody. I'm Tom Bushlack, and thanks for listening. This is episode six of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. This interview is with Myra Rucker, a yoga instructor from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this episode was particularly fun for me because Myra was my very first yoga teacher, and she's since become a very good friend and a wonderful conversation partner on this path of contemplative transformation. There's a saying that goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. This is how I understand getting to know and practice with Myra. About seven or eight years ago, I walked into a yoga studio at the YMCA in downtown Minneapolis. My wife and other friends had been suggesting to me for years that I should try yoga. And I had known many other people in the climbing community that I hung out with who found yoga helpful for increasing balance, strength, and flexibility. So standing outside that first class, feeling very awkward, I told somebody else that it was my first class. He gave me this soft, sort of knowing smile and said, you're going to love it. Myra is amazing. Little did I know. Like many Americans who go into a yoga studio, I thought of it mostly as a physical practice. But gradually, I learned so much more about how yoga is a truly contemplative tradition, how asana and pranayama, that is, the physical posture and breath, are only two aspects of the eight limbs of Ashtanga yoga, which culminates in a single-pointed union with the object of one's meditation in samadhi. Myra gets into this a little bit in the discussion. What I do recall during those first few classes, which were a vinyasa or flow style of yoga, is sweating really hard, feeling really awkward and out of balance, but then resting down into shavasana at the end of practice and experiencing this joyful release that is hard to put into words. I couldn't really describe it other than to say that what I felt was that I was literally letting go of some kind of knots or tension that I had been carrying in my body for as long as I could remember being alive. And the release was ecstatic. There were times when tears were running down my cheeks at the end of class, and they were tears of both joy and sadness at the same time. It wasn't long before I started sticking around after class to ask Myra questions, and she started feeding me different ideas of, of books or texts that I should read on the yoga philosophy. I now began to understand what I was experiencing in that ecstatic release. In the yoga philosophy, there are channels of energy that flow throughout the entire body called nadis. When they come together in points of focus, those are the seven chakras that many of us might be more familiar with. When we store tension, stress, or trauma in our bodies, those nadis or energy channels become clogged, and those blockages are called granthis. 
This ancient wisdom is consistent, interestingly, with neuroscience that notes how memories can become stored in our physical body, in our implicit memory systems, at levels that are below our usual conscious level of awareness. The practice of yoga is one of refining our awareness into those subtle layers of our mind-body experience so that we can gradually release those granthis or blockages. And as we do so, we naturally move toward deeper states of meditation, contemplation, or union. The purifying dimension of engaging a yoga practice with mindfulness has been invaluable for me, especially for moving deeper into a contemplative practice. I've also found that a regular yoga practice has been the single most effective practice for me for dealing with severe anxiety, though I do believe that this is an effect of the contemplative transformation more than the goal in and of itself. Okay, I want to add one other quick note about our conversation. After we recorded it, Myra and I were texting back and forth, and we both noted that the conversation didn't go exactly where we thought it might. She gets into some deeply personal reflections about both religious and racial identity that we hadn't even really breached in many of our previous conversations. So I'm particularly grateful for Myra for her vulnerability in discussing this publicly on the podcast. And I think it really speaks directly to many of the issues that we're dealing with at this crossroads between contemplative practice, personal identity, and social justice issues in our culture today. I hope you find this both uh, refreshingly honest and personally challenging, as I did in listening to her experience. All right, so I'm really excited to share Myra and Myra's wisdom with you, and thank you all again for listening. Um, you can find the show notes and links to more information about Myra at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode six. So thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode six. That's episode and the letter six. I'm sorry, the number six. No spaces. And as always, if you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast, I am very grateful as that helps to spread the word to others. And you can always make a donation to support Contemplate This at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash donate. All right, with that introduction in place, let's jump right into my conversation with Myra Rucker. Well, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for asking me to be here. It's an honor. Yeah, cool. So uh, I usually ask people to just start kind of tell us a little bit about who you are <laughs> and oh. <laughs> you know the the title of the podcast is contemplate this so conversations on contemplation and compassion okay. so I like to capture a little bit of your like your background um, how you got into your particular contemplative practice which I take it is pri primarily yoga but we'll unpack that mm -hmm. um, uh, and and then just kind of learn about your own approach and, and how it's affected you, so. Okay, so, wow, the question <laughs> is where where to begin? I mean, I think it is fun to go all the way back, like. Okay, we'll go all the way back. Family, so, like where you grew up, and yeah. what, I know you went to, I, I know we, like, we've had little bits and pieces of conversations, but I've never 
heard you kind of put the narrative all the way together. So I know there's like Catholic school in there somewhere in Texas, is, yeah. which in and of itself uh, is interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, Catholic school is in Maryland. But so, okay, so oh. we come back and um, I'm from Texas, born and bred. Um, and at because my dad was getting his PhD at Howard in Washington, D.C., there was a point um, very early in my life where the family moved to the Maryland, D.C. area. And that's where I ended up going to Catholic school for a while. Um, during that time, we would still go back to Texas. Um, that was our summer vacation. That was like camp where people going to their cabins up here. So yeah. I would go to Texas and part of it would be in Houston and part of it would be in Paris, Texas, um, because both sides of my family are from Paris, Texas. Um, my mom's family was in town and my dad's family was from the country. So that's very different. But the thing that was that everybody had in common was going to church. And in Texas, just like in much of the rest of the Bible Belt, going to tech going to church on Sunday meant you went to church on Sunday, like all day. That's like what all you day, did. yeah. All day, that's what you did. So you got up and you went to Sunday school and then you went to church at your church and you would eat there. And then you, you know, in the country at least, then you would, you know, sometimes more often than not go to somebody else's church further into the woods. And um, huh. yeah, and so that was my real introduction. And it, there's such an emphasis on religion and God and everything in that context that when I was in Maryland going to school and everything, like there were times when I would get up in the morning and I would walk to church, even if no one else was going to church because it was that important to go to church. So I go to church. Um, so it was habituated into you. It was totally habituated. And was there a particular dom denomination that was important or right. so like that your was family? The, yeah. So that, at that time, the most of the, the churches of my family. So my uh, family background is United Methodist. Okay. And you know, going to Maryland, you're still in the South, but you're getting you're creeping up there in that Northern Territory. <laughs> so then you get into the politics of why are there United Methodist churches versus Methodist churches? Why are there AME churches? You know, like versus United Methodist. And so then you get into the politics of the civil rights and going all the way back to you know, the war of Northern aggression as they like to call it down there. And, uh, but it was also like, but I ha had already an introduction to how things were different in different churches because in the South on Sundays, we, in the country, we would also go to Baptist churches sometimes. And so mm -hmm. then you also had the difference between the Southern Baptist conference and just the Baptists, um, and the Holy roller churches and everything else. And so right around that time that that was my summer experience. And then I'd go to back to Maryland and I would walk to church on my own sometimes. Um, during that time, I was also at one point going to Catholic school and living in a, in a neighborhood where a lot of my neighbors and a lot of the kids that I played with were Jewish. So you had a, like an interspiritual encounter from the get go. Right. And then my dad, you know, a lot of his contemporaries in school were from other countries and they had other faiths as well. So I just had that awareness there. And this is where the problems happened because, <laughs> you know, we had a lot of Socratic experience in, at the dining room table and that kind of filtered out into school and everything else. And so I had an inquiring mind and started asking people. And by people, I mean, you know, the ministers and the pastors and the nuns and the priests questions. And they were theological questions. Yeah. Apparently I was too young to ask. <laughs> um, and that, that was an issue. Like that was a really significant issue. And, it, and maybe it wasn't as much of an issue for them as it was for me. Because I was a child at that time who was used to getting answers. Yeah. So inquire, you know, even if it's, it, it, even if there was like, go sit and, and 
contemplate it for a while, it'll come to you or whatever, or it won't. But it was not, but the answers I kept getting was, don't worry about that. I can't tell you anything about that. You really shouldn't be asking that. Hmm. On the flip side, the friends of mine that were Jewish were having a completely different experience with their theology and their religion. Ask the question. Let's talk about the question. Let's go back to, you know, let's go back to the Torah and let's see what that's all about. And what does that feel like to you? And what do you think about that? Um, And they're the same age as me. Yeah. And sometimes they weren't very interested in it, but that was their experience. And I had a little taste of that. Um, And my questions were things along the lines of when I went to Catholic school, I couldn't take communion. Mm -hmm. And as a Christian at that time, I was like such a big thing, taking communion and the host and the blood and everything was just like so vital to the whole experience. And then it was heartbreaking to be in fifth grade in Catholic school and being told you have to go to mass every day, but you can't take communion. And yeah. I was like, why? And so this is me in fifth grade. I don't understand. When we go to church at the United Methodist Church, we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Does this mean you don't believe in us? <laughs> and you actually have the name Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had no concept yeah, no. Yeah. capital C versus lower Catholic. Sure. Lower I had no concept of that, really. Um, and so the priests and the nuns weren't answering that question. And then I went back to the United Methodist Church and they weren't answering that question. I went back and forth. And then to add to that, go to Texas and every small church in the middle of nowhere um, would be like, if you're in these four walls, you're going to heaven and everyone else is condemned to hell. And I'd be like, how is that possible? How is it possible that the only people that are going to heaven, the only people that have an honest, authentic relationship with God are the people that are in this room. And if I go 35 miles down the road, further into the woods, all of a sudden, they're the only people that have, like, what happened in that 35 miles that I went into another sphere? You drove through the devil's country, right? Well, I did die. (laughs) I went to the devil's crossroads, and we didn't sell our souls, so there was no music. So uh, we didn't have a Robert Johnson moment. We just kept going. And uh, nobody was really answering the question, so then I just kept but I had this relationship and I had, you know, this was also a time when Pope John Paul was coming to DC and it was this huge thing when we lived up there. I had, you know, other kids had posters of like the Cassidy boy, like Sean Cassidy. And I had a picture of the Pope. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So you were a United Methodist kid at a Catholic school uh, with a picture of the Pope. Wow. I was going to convert and I was going to be a nun. That was wow. Was, yeah. Oh, I never, I, you've never told me that before. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. But along in there, that was also during the time where I was going to be a veterinarian and I was going to be a psychiatrist and I was going to be a writer and I was going to be, you know, a musician and I was going to be an actor. And it was all these things that, yeah. you know, in some ways I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, actually, a lot of those might might fit from what I know of you, but yeah. Oh, I, so can I go back to the, um, what was your dad getting a PhD in? I forget. Neurology and physiology. Okay. So. And so he went on to teach doctors medicine. He went okay, on to so teach. So he teaches at a medical school or taught. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. He, he retired. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that, that like inquisitiveness did that, was that encouraged actively by your parents? Or Absolutely. By, both okay. So it was like, this was like part of the dinner table of like, we're going to be in. Yeah. I wasn't like necessarily at 
dinner having these conversations because my parents were experts in other things. Yeah. I didn't necessarily consider them experts in God. Yeah. And the way in which, especially the, like my grandmothers and my great grandmothers and my grandfathers and my great grandfathers and everything, their relationship was such that I didn't necessarily view them as experts on God either, even though they very easily could have been considered. I didn't, you know, sure. expect them to be. So that's not where I automatically went with my conversation in that regard. Okay. Because um, there were people that were experts. There were people that by their title, by their roles, they were the experts. Right. They were not giving the answers. What was your mom doing? What was her? Um, my mom worked as an administrator at different times. So um, we were in DC. Well, when we were still in Texas. She worked for Child Protective Services when we worked. And when we were in DC, she worked for um, Public Defender's Office. Um, she, at different times when we were moving later, um, she either worked for lawyers or doctors. Yeah. So do you think um, when you were asking these questions, obviously you didn't stop. I know you well enough to know you didn't stop asking the questions, which I love. Um, I mean, that's like the biggest thing I tell my students on day one of every class I've ever taught. The most important thing that you bring into the class is your questions. Um, because sometimes asking the right question is actually what opens up new insight. So I think that's an, that's an important skill and probably one that a lot of people who find themselves called to some kind of contemplative path, whatever that looks like, share to a certain degree. Um, so you were asking these questions, not getting answers. Do you think they were um, not able to answer the questions or were they just kind of feeling like they didn't want to deal with, with you at that age asking those questions? <laughs> um, I think it was a combination of all of that and a little bit more too. Um, I also don't know that, I mean, at this point in my life, I would say that it's not really appropriate for somebody else to answer those questions for you. Mm. Um, it's one thing, the, the politics of it, and obviously for somebody to explain theology is one thing. Yeah. But I was, I was looking for the kinds of answers that I'd get from my parents or from my grandparents or my great-grandparents or even my adult cousins about the things that they did. Mm. So they were very hard and fast you know, concrete answers. Um, yeah. And that's what they were not able to give. And in some cases, just not being comfortable. In some cases, not really knowing, like, how do you answer, like, this seven, nine, 13 year old black girl these questions? Like, how do you answer that? Yeah. Um, and so but you just, and so you don't. Yeah. No, that's the answer. I mean, I don't yeah. know how it is now for somebody that age, um, but you don't. In that case. And also, you know, because of my parents, I had um, an educational experience at home and in school that was different. And so the expectation was different there. Um, yeah. It was, you know, it wasn't something that most of the religious leaders that I encountered at the time, it wasn't something that they were used to dealing with. Hmm. So just don't do that. Yeah. It also sound really sacrilegious. Yeah, no, I agree. And yeah, depending on your perspective, what I, I'm fascinated by you having that encounter with like Jewish kids in your neighborhood. Yeah. Because I do think that is a, dis a kind of distinction in the Jewish tradition that wrestling with questions, um, putting out those hard answers, even in, even in the Hebrew Bible, um, that's much more common where I think we've gotten this idea in the Christian tradition that the goal is not to wrestle with questions. It's to be kind of given the answers and then conform to that. 
No, I don't. That's not everybody's experience. And, and obviously it's not mine or I wouldn't still practice in the tradition, but, um, but I do think that's probably the way it's most popularly thought of. So you had that encounter and I was thinking a lot of people spend a good chunk of their lives trying not to ask those kinds of questions. So even as a little girl, that could be challenging to them, like pushing their buttons right, with right. difficult questions that had nothing to maybe even to do with you necessarily. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And something that I m- wasn't really completely aware of all of the politics, some of the politics, but not all of the politics. You know? No. Cause you're just a kid asking questions and curious. Yeah. Right. And, and very, I will say too, and very, very sheltered from a lot of the racism and the prejudice that, that existed then and now. Hmm. Um, yeah, that goes. Why do you think? Yeah, I'm curious. There's a couple areas I want to go because I I also want to circle back around to your comment that I think was really profound, which is these are questions that that you have to answer for yourself. Each of us has to answer. I want to hold that. But um, yeah, so can can you say a little bit more about like how were you sheltered from that? I mean, if you were um, you were in the South or in Maryland, your dad was at Howard. It seems like you would have been sort of like right in the heart of some of that. Um, so this is, yeah. So I, um, am the oldest of my brothers and the oldest of my first cousins okay. that I grew up with. And I'm the only girl. Mm. And so I was, as you imagine, I mean, I was treated like a princess as a little girl and just like, you know, that was, and so there were just, and also just it, it, above and beyond everything else, um, women of color have a very different experience than men of color in this country. And it is much easier if you live in upper middle, or at least during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, if you lived in upper middle class areas and you had um, a certain level of education, it was possible as a girl to get by and not feel everything that was happening and not experience everything that was happening. It's rare, but it happens. Yeah. I just happened to be in that, um, in that little window of area where it was happening. My brothers have very different experiences because, you know, growing up they were boys. So they Um, were confronted with things more directly. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And I, I mean, like, I remember we lived in Lubbock, Texas for a year when I was in high school. So I went to high school in three states. And one of the places where I went to high school was in Lubbock, Texas. And it was the worst year, socially speaking, for everyone in the family but me. Huh. And part of the reason why it was a great experience with, for me was because it was the most diverse experience I had ever had up until that point like in school and social and everything like that. And for everybody else, it was just like a constant, just constant encounters. We lived right next door to the mall, South Plains Mall, um, which was like the biggest mall in a tri-state area, but we'd also get people from Mexico going to that mall. And my mom went to take a watch to the mall. And the person that was at the jewelry shop um, said, oh yeah, we can fix this. It'll take da 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 like however many uh, days it would take, and then we'll ship it over to the other the other mall so that it'll be closer to you and you won't have to come out of your way to pick it up. And my mom was like, how is this coming out of the way when I live right across the road? 
but the assumption was because she was a black woman that she had come across town. Oh. To go to the mall. Yeah. To to do this to get her watch fixed. Yeah. And that it would be more convenient to ship it back over to the other mall. Huh. The smaller mall. Yeah. It was in the black neighborhood. Right. Which would have actually been farther for her to go at that point. Yeah. Right. 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 So, you know, stuff like that, um, like anecdotally, it's one thing to hear about that, even as a kid. It's one thing to hear about that. It's one thing to um, have that directed at you and to understand where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that I just had complete. I mean, in terms of spiritual bypass, there was a lot of things regarding to racism. And when I was growing up, it just like totally over my head, under, around. I just, it was like I was the rock in the water and all that sludge was just going past and I had had nothing to do with me. Yeah. Um, Even though it did. Sure. And it just in my circumstances were such that it was really easy to do that. Um, I recognize now that that was not everybody's experience, even other girls my age. Um, and definitely later in life, women my age, but I, uh, so you could call me the black Rachel Dozer. In the okay. Sense I don't that, actually know who that is, but <laughs> so in the sense that, um, uh, I knew that my family was black, but there was a period of time in my early childhood where I didn't realize I was black. Oh, just had no concept of that. But it's not like you thought of yourself as something different. It just wasn't part of your identity. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, I totally did think of myself as something different. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was blonde hair, blue eyed. I was like, oh. had Farrah Fawcett hair and Lindsay Wagner hair. And, you know, and that comes from like the straightening of the hair and everything else. And also because I was in situations where um, it wasn't, it, I wasn't constantly being reminded of the fact that I had black skin. Huh. Wow. And so did you ever feel pressure to straighten your hair or diet or anything? Or was that just something that you did because there, I mean, it's, it's hard to say there was pressure because at the time, there's cultural pressure. No, I mean, with the time, so if you go back to the seventies and you look at, for instance, like a handbook from the airlines in terms of the stewardess and stuff like that, and they have pictures of what is professional hair. And what is appropriate and anything that would be remotely natural in uh, African-American yeah. uh, it would not be considered pro- professional. Yeah. So it wasn't even like, you can't say there was like peer. I mean, there was peer pressure and there was societal pr- pressure and everything like that. But as a child, I didn't know that. I didn't sure. know. I wasn't in the kind of environments where there was any other option or even the consideration of other options. Huh. You didn't think about it. Yeah. It's just what you did. Yeah. And you didn't think about the scars that that caused physically or emotionally or mentally. It's just what you did. Yeah. And for me at that time, I didn't, you know, you just don't, it wasn't even something as to say, contemplate this. It wasn't even something that you contemplated. Right. Yeah. Right? It was just what it was. But as we've seen, there are other ramifications for that. And for me, those part of that ramification was that there was this piece of myself that was part of me, but it was so pushed over to the side. And it was something that was so obvious to other people, but it wasn't obvious to me. Yeah. So it was so pushed over to the side that I didn't really have any concept of 
of being a person of color, really truly like internalized concept of what that meant or what that meant in this country until um, uh, late in high school. Mm. And really didn't know what it meant or even had any concept of it until I was in college. And it wasn't until after college that anyone like called me the N word or anything like that. Mm. And then it wasn't until I came up here that I was like, Oh my goodness gracious. This is like, this is, yeah, this is different. And so up here is Minnesota for, which is, uh, you know, the Scandinavian of the, of the United States. Yeah. So, uh, I've, I've got a good friend from college, um, who grew up in Kentucky and then went to college with me in Minnesota. And he would always say, I mean, he himself was white, but he would say, you know, you're nicer to people of color to their face in Minnesota, mm-hmm. but you're actually way more exclusionary yeah. than we are in Kentucky. Yeah. I don't know. Does that fit with your Absolutely. experience? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like in the South, you know where the racism is and you know what you're dealing with. Um, and up here, you don't always know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, going around and around, I mean, like the bottom line is that there was an aspect of myself and therefore an aspect of my spirit that was just completely off to the side and not considered until I had certain experiences where I was confronted by that. And then again, it's that thinking about that why is this like this, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and this actually, and, and how this is relevant going back to that conversation of spirit also is because, um, I, you know, obviously in school you learn about, uh, or some people learn about middle passage and slavery and everything and going through, um, civil war and reconstruction and everything that's related to that. I wasn't really interested in any of that, but I would spend copious amount of free time reading about the Holocaust and reading about Holocaust survivors mm. and all of this other stuff. And also like reading about how they dealt with all the persecution and everything like that from a spiritual level. And this was like a kid, like even yeah. in school that I c- couldn't have any time, anything to do with slavery, but there's this other thing going on. And I was just like steeped so far into it. And it is like, there's total parallels, not only in the persecution and not only in the oppression, um, but also in the way that these communities and these cultures carried their faiths with them through these really, really hard, challenging times. Right. So on a certain level, like now I look back and think, okay, psychologically I had certain blocks and I wanted to live my life and be the child that I was. And I had the privilege to do that, you know, to have those blocks in place, even though there are people in my family and people, you know, around me in the community who didn't have those. I had those blinders. And I, on a certain very subconscious level, wanted to stay within those blinders because life was really good there. Sure. But it wasn't totally gone. And proof of that is that, like I said, I so much free time because I was a big reader. Yeah. At any given point in time, I would be reading something about the Holocaust and studying something about like people's experiences and how people dealt with that. But I read like every Tony Morrison book that came out when I was in um, school all the way up through college, except the bluest eye because it was too close to home. Too close. Yeah. Close to home. Now I didn't have any of the sexual trauma that she has in the book. Right. But everything else is right there. Yeah. 
So earlier you kind of talked about it as a, I think you used the language of a spiritual bypass. Yeah. Some of it. So can you take us through, I mean, obviously the bypass got closed at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what was that like, um, you know, particularly kind of as a spiritual practice or struggle and, and where, where was the question, like a lot of those early questions about faith and, and spiritual tradition in all of that process? So part of it was college. Um, part of it Which was, was where again? I went to Rice University in Houston. Okay. So part of it was college. Part of it was going through a religious studies course um, where I did go and explore different faiths, um, including, you know, going at, during a period of time, going to synagogue and considering like, what would life be like if I uh, converted that way? Yeah. Um, and uh, part of that was being, again, as I was in Lubbock, around more diversity and um, being around people of different um, ethnicities and different races and different nationalities who, um, and this gets into education, had a certain level of education to be at that school. Mm -hmm. and um and so I should go back in terms of like that high school in Lubbock being the most diverse because a lot of the programs that I was in previous to that had been honors programs or academic programs where um there's just a really small group of people in there and then your percentage of people of color is going to change as well yeah Um, in that time right so in um when I went to Lubbock high school, there was a lot of everybody. And so, and it wasn't, and it wasn't about color and it wasn't about gender and it wasn't about education. It was just like, everybody's in this pool together. And now you get to know people in this pool, not based on what they look like or what they do or anything else. And so there's an acceptance there. Yeah. Right. That I really didn't have before because I didn't have to have it. Right. Um, but here there's an acceptance that then starts to become like, if somebody's your friend, they're not your friend because you're smart or because you're this color or because you're this gender, they're just your friend. Mm. And so as other people start to accept more of you, then you start to accept more of yourself. And then I went to high school in Nashville and I had a guy that I was really good friends with and hadn't thought of as anything but a friend tell me we couldn't go to prom together because his father would beat him because he was white and black. And my, and my reaction was so visceral and violent on so many different levels. And one of them being that consciously it hadn't even occurred to me to go to prom with this guy. So I just, <laughs> well, just bring it up that we, that we could go to prom together. Uh, <laughs> and the other piece was that, like, yeah, how dare you? You know, how yeah. dare you? Um, but that was a moment, too, of, wait, so then I go from this, this moment of being accepted and starting to go, oh, wait, what does that mean, to then going to this other school, also in the South, um, where somebody's telling me, well, you're different, and that is unacceptable. And, you know, and I didn't really, I, I was able to skip over all that growing up, that acceptance or not acceptance because of the environments that I was in academically. Um, and then I went to college, and you got to think you got to think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I had really, really close friends. Like my best friend in college uh, didn't grow up with the, at the same economic level that I did, but he's white and he's Catholic. And there should have been so much privilege there. 
and there was, and he's a, and he's, it was a guy and there was some privilege there, but it wasn't the same kind of privilege that I had. Yeah. You know, and we had, we had had in our lifetime since college, a lot of discussions about faith and about society and about politics and about how that's all interwoven. And when you start to consider those things, when you start to contemplate those things, when you start to think about those things, you overcome that bypass on a certain level. Yeah. Unless you don't, you know, there's some people that can talk about it and it doesn't ever get internalized. It's just, you know, they're a talking head. Yeah. Um, and Why'd you point at me when you said that? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I was pointing at the street. <laughs> we're right now we're both talking heads. So That's true. Cool. Yeah. No, but it was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I um, teach and practice at a Buddhist center here in um, Minneapolis. And I remember having a conversation with um, one of their directors a while back. And it was a group discussion, but um, I had some, and it was, uh, a discussion where they were talking about like how to get people to really consider the topic at hand. Mm. And I was like, well, they're already in pre-contemplation. So if they show up like they're going into, and then that's where she broke it down to me. And she was like, no, 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 no. In this context, like just because somebody, just because somebody is aware of the fact that this training is happening or this Dharma talk is being given or whatever, just because they are aware of the fact that for instance, there's racism or sexism or anything else in the world doesn't mean that they're actually contemplating it. Okay. This is really key. I think, I think this is like a really important question that, you know, people in contemplative traditions are asking right now, because I agree with you that there's a difference yeah. It, it's sort of hard to name. I mean, how would you explain the difference between being aware of it? And then I guess I would put it almost, I don't know how you would put it and encountering it mm-hmm. on a visceral embodied emotional level. Yeah. You know? Does it mean anything to you? Right. I mean, even with the pre-contemplation and, and somebody who, is Buddhist and is a Buddhist scholar and and sits with that might have a different way of saying this. But like, to me, it's, does it actually mean something to you or is it theory? If you're thinking about it as theory, if it's something in a book, if it's something that somebody's telling you and it's something that once you walk away from that table, once you walk away from that book, once you walk away from that podcast, doesn't really have a place in your heart as far as your mind knows, then you're thinking about it. You're not really contemplating it you're not even in that pre-contemplation because you haven't gotten to that place where it actually means something to you like the discussion we were having this leader and I were having was along the lines of to me the minute the Buddha saw suffering you know like he saw that people age and he saw that people were sick and he saw that people sometimes didn't have something to eat to me the minute that he saw it that was pre-contemplation but it wasn't because he could have kept going. So it's the next moment. It's the moment when he starts to consider it and he starts to consider what can I do? Mm. How does this affect me? Like, it's not just somebody else's experience. It's also my experience. Yeah. So I, you know, somebody else might have a different idea on this, but for me at this point, it sounds like when you get to that point, not when you first encounter it, but when you, you stop, when you pause and you're like, what does this have to do with me? 
Yeah. How does this affect my heart? How does this affect the hearts of the people around me, including these people that are suffering? Like now that's, that's, you're starting to get to that. That's pre-contemplation. Okay. So yeah. for me, like I can't see either in my own experience or, or other people that I've, that I've known. Um, the only way you get to that heart level is if you have some kind of relationship with mm -hmm. the person who is, say undergoing that suffering or um, do you think it can happen outside of that? Uh, I think so. Well, and the reason why I think so is because I think you can have a relationship with a person who's going through it and still not go through it. Yeah. Okay. So let's, that's what I want to get at. Yeah. So, okay. I, I want to get at that. And then I want to know, I want to understand a little bit what you mean by pre-contemplation. Yeah. Cause it sounds like you have kind of a technical understanding at play there. Uh, I know Mark. there is, no, I know there is a technical understanding. Okay. Well then give that. me the Myra non-technical understanding. The non but, the, yeah. the, it's, it's, um, it's that pause. It's that pause. Like however that is defined, whatever length of time that is, um, it is that pause because once you pause, things change. Hmm. Right. And yeah. Um, so this is like Tara Brock talking about the sacred pause. Yeah. That, <laughs> I yeah, mean, maybe that, but, and that can be, that can be something that you sell, you choose to do, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm about to go into a stressful meeting or talk to a person that really bothers me. Right. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to pause and like take five deep breaths um, and practice my, my mindfulness or whatever, or it can be literally some kind of like a resting experience. Right. Um, right. Like, I mean, I, I saw that on a city wide after the Jason Stockley verdict here yeah. in St. Louis, yeah. like people just literally, it was like people stopped yeah. and life was different. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't, I hadn't moved here yet with Michael Brown, I, but people that I family and people I know that that was even more intense then. Um, so you're, you're seeing that as kind of a pre contemplation an invitation is that a fair word to use to like? Yeah, I think that's an. Uh, um, I think it's accepting the invitation because the invitation is always there. Sure. The invitation is always there. It's accepting the invitation. I feel like yeah, that would, that's a fair way of, of way of describing that pre-contemplation. From, from my understanding of it, it is accepting that invitation to step into that space. And it is like you said, it's a space of suffering, but it's not necessarily people you know directly. It could be people you know of. Yeah. Like, people you know you're seeing there's all this stuff that's happening in this country that's happening in this world that we're all aware of because of the media or because of you know uh, professional media or social media we're aware of it it's out there yeah um what are we willing to do about it even if what we're willing to do about it is not make it worse Mm -hmm. And that's tricky because um, I think it's a really important thing. And I tell people that all the time. I tell myself that all the time. Sometimes the only thing you can do is not make it worse. Mm. And if you take a moment to even consider that, it can be huge. Yeah. But there's a lot of people, and this to me would also be that pre-contemplation. Because to me, um, the minute you encounter a situation, you're in a position to not make it worse. You're in a position also to make it worse. You're also in a position to make it better, but not making it worse can also make it better. Yeah. But if you well, I can stop the, I think about that in terms of like nonviolent uh, tactics, right. right. Of, of disengaging from destructive and violent cycles. Um, right. 
sometimes just that initial disengagement right. is a way of getting out of the, that, the cycle of it, the right. samsara. But there's a lot, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of people that don't ever consider those possibilities because they're in, because they're, they haven't even reached that pre-contemplation. Yeah. So they're not considering those possibilities. They're not considering how the situation is affecting their heart. They're just going on as much as they're able to deal with their, their lives. And everything else is a disruption of their lives. And that's an experience I think that happens regardless of your race and regardless of your gender, um, regardless of your sexual orientation, it happens. Yeah. And um, there are people that are being forced to answer that question before it's even asked. Right. There are people who are being forced because their lives are at stake, but there's a lot of us that even though our lives are at stake at any given moment, we're not thinking about that. That's, that's huge because I think we, we want to convince ourselves that our lives are not at stake in some of these big questions about our society. But if you pause at that (laughs) pre-contemplation, then suddenly you have to wake up to the fact that your life is at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Your own liberation is tied up with that of others. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm really, so this is, this is, this is good stuff. Um, I mean, not good in, but like, it's right. sad that we're still that we have to talk about it, but right. it's it's the human condition, right? And I I think I'm you use the language of like possibilities. Mm-hmm. So some and I I'm I think that it, how should I put this? Being a contemplative and having that moment of of pre contemplation of being brought up short by an experience and allowing it to touch you and then entering into that with some kind of contemplative stance or practice opens up possibilities that, that um, maybe wouldn't be seen. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I don't know if you want to talk in general terms or in your own experience about what is it, what it, what opens up then when you bring that into that experience? Uh, what opens up? Is that what you're asking? Well, how do you, how do you do it? Right. I mean, most of us don't, have <laughs> oh like most people in general don't have a, 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 a contemplative practice perhaps right. let alone the capacity to think through like holy cow here's this huge major social issue racism or um, violence whatever how do I enter into that with while keeping my own integrity and my own grounding in a contemplative practice yeah. So I think that you have to be willing to deal with the really messy, icky, uncomfortable feelings that come up like anger and fear and grief and acknowledge how deep it is, Um, especially if there have been things along the way where you haven't dealt with that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just, uh, just like I I have um, on a regular basis, I practice meta, which is a loving kindness or material loving kindness meditation. And there, there are days, especially when I started doing it regularly where something would not go quite right. And sometimes it was something directly directed at me. I felt like it was about me directed at me and I would be so angry. And part of the anger, anger would be, and this sounds ridiculous, but part of the anger would be, 
oh my God, I just spent like half an hour wishing you happiness and peace and joy. And now you're making me miserable. How can I do that? How can I do that? How do you? And so much anger, right? As if there was a direct correlation, as if I could spend half an hour wishing you peace and love and happiness and health and joy. And then magically after that half hour, everything would be sunshine and light. And whatever thing that was like interrupting my day wouldn't interrupt my day because things would go the way I wanted them to, because somehow the way that I wanted it to go would make you happy yeah. and would make you peaceful. I would bring you ease. Like it doesn't make any sense. Right. And yet. So, so what I'm hearing in that is like that, that the practice of doing a meta or a loving kindness is really not, it's not about the other person. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, it I is. Mean, it is. It it's, in terms of cultivating a genuine desire for the other to right. be happy and then taking action wherever possible. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately we can't control that. Right. Right. And it's, it's, it is, it is. Um, I mean, it's like, it's like prayer. It's like when people pray for the health of others. Like I believe that there's an energetic connection there and that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the moment when you're doing it, there is a certain level of doing it that's about you. Yeah. Right? And even when you get into the energy of it, um, it's not magically, you know, like half an hour and it's magically. I mean, I think about like the different miracles that are attributed to different people when they're um, canonized, right? Uh, That it doesn't happen instantaneously. Right. There's like they because it's a miracle, we say it happened instantaneously. Right. This this miracle is attributed to St. Joan or St. Teresa or something like that or St. Michael. Instantly, we say. But it's it's not actually instantly. There's something else. You know, it's like it's um epiphany, eureka moment, but epiphany. Right. That revelation. You have to be prepared. You have to be prepared for the epiphany. You have to understand what it is you're seeing you have to understand like for those wise men to follow the star they had to understand the significance of what they were being told and not just say oh i'm hallucinating and this is not a message from god and this is not an angel or whatever like there has to be some preparation yeah so it doesn't it's not just instantly um yeah so there's all that yeah (laughs) oh this okay so I want to I want to hear about your own practice. Like so I mean you've mentioned that you practice meta and I know I mean my experience with you is is through the practice of yoga and the teaching that you did do still do at the Y and I know you teach at Common Ground a Buddhist uh, meditation center. So um take us through like how did that become your kind of home practice? Because when we left your narrative kind of college, <laughs> yeah. you were still somewhere in the Methodist Catholic world. <laughs> Methodist Catholic Jewish world, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I forgot about uh, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that just those experiences growing up gave me so much religious history. And the thing that stuck with me um, and continues to stick with me is how everything comes from the source. And then these paths diverge off and people get on the other end of this path 
that they're on or in the middle of this path, however long it goes before it circles back around. And they think this is the only path. Yeah. And they forget that there was one source. Right. It, it's like, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm going to say it's easy to say, but for some people, this is hard to say, but it's easy to say that the Abrahamic religions all came from one source. Right. Um, some people don't know that even when they're practicing one of those faiths. Some people don't know that history, even though they're like steeped in it. Right. Yeah. Um, so they get way down the path and they're still talking about one God, but they don't acknowledge that it's the same God. And sometimes it's a language thing and sometimes it's a political thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if I, yeah, so, so like that stuck with me. That was a through line. There was never a question of whether or not there was a God. There was just a question of, does this guy over here know what he's talking about when he talks about God? Like that was the distinction. So yeah. I got to college and there was more and there was more and there was more. And then, um, and I was still going to church and I was still occasionally going to synagogue and I was meditating and it was all kind of off on the side here and there. Um, there was never a moment where there wasn't a relationship with God. And so there wasn't ever a moment where there wasn't some contemplation of what that meant Mm. to be a child of God, to have a, to be a spirit in a body. Like there wasn't ever a moment where that wasn't part of the consideration. Mm. Um, And that makes a difference. I think, right. I haven't, I can't say that, uh, you know, Let's say John talks about a dark night of the soul. Like, I can't say that I've ever really had that. Like, I've had doubt and I've had fear and I've had crushing experiences to my heart, to my soul. But, and that feels really huge until you look at somebody else's experience. And maybe everybody can say that. But, um, yeah, I just haven't had that. There's always been unquestionably this faith. Yeah. And so everything else, it's more a matter of how does that faith make sense in the world? And so then I, um, so my first job out of college was at Houston Ballet. And then I left after about a year and a half and I was in PR and I left after a year and a half and I came back about six years later at production at Baptist Houston Ballet. And at one point, one of the dancers, Dominic Walsh, arranged for a really uh, well-known in Houston, a really well-known yoga instructor, Robert Bustani, to come and teach yoga on the dancer day off. And I had heard of Robert because a friend of mine who did martial arts, she was a black, I think she was a black belt at the time, uh, she had had an injury. And this was re- his yoga was recommended to her as physical therapy. And this is back in the mid nineties, late nineties, maybe. So, um, uh, so he comes and I take class and it was dancers and musicians and me. And after class, Robert was like, well, I know what they do. Like, I know what the dancers do and I know what the musicians do. Like, what do you do? And I was a stage manager at the time. And, um, explained that my job was to pull in all these different um, disciplines, like all the different designer elements and all the different artistic elements so that when it came to stage, the audience saw one unified whole. They didn't see all these different pieces, all these different ideas. And he was like, oh, you practice yoga. I was like, what? What are you talking about? I just practice yoga. What does that have to do? But anyway, so this is my first uh, experience with this, um, with this physical practice that I just had done was also a philosophy yeah. and that it had this ultimate goal 
of union or even that that word yoga means union mm -hmm. and that when you go all the way through the eight limbs that then there is um you know some people would uh, define samadhi as perfect meditation some people would define it as enlightenment whatever that means and some people would define it as union with divine yeah and that started to make sense for me hmm. and so for a while i just did uh you know i practiced once a week and then eventually got to the place where i was practicing a little bit on my own and then once a week and then as it happens to a lot of people i had a major breakup and then it was like every day i needed yoga or i was just not going to be able to function hmm. and i was very grateful to not only have robert as a teacher but other people also that approached the physical practice from that perspective of the philosophy um and the practices were really different like the excuse me the physical practices were really different. The styles and traditions were really different, but there was this underlying theme, this underlying thread, this underlying sutra, as it were. And, uh, um, and then there was more of that and there was more of that. And um, uh, people suggested taking that I take teacher training and I was like, oh yeah, maybe sometime down the line and sometime down the line. And then I came to Minnesota and it was the end of the line, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> Last stop know. before Canada. Yeah, well, it, it was that, but it was also, <laughs> uh, um, there was a moment, and this is as close as I've come again, you talk about, when I mentioned that dark night as well, that's maybe as close as I ever came of um, so far. And it was a moment of like, you go forward, like you get up and you go forward or you stay down, mm. but you don't actually go back. Like there is no going back. You stay down. Um, and there's, I think for a lot of people, there are situations where we want things to just go back the way they were. Yeah. But in fact, what we're wishing for is to be curled up in the fetal position on the ground. Just, we don't realize that's what we're wishing for. Right. So when you're in that situation, your choice is to give up or go on. And part of going on for me became taking teacher training. And I, didn't take it to, um, to teach yoga. I had previously, there was lots of people in my home community who their only intersection with yoga was me, knowing that I practice yoga. And they wanted to know what they could do for this ailment or that ailment, especially to older women. And they wanted to know like, what, what was this and everything like that. And I really couldn't answer those questions. Yeah. And so now here I am in my mid thirties doing something really important to me, and something that I think is really, 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 really important to my body and my mind and my spirit. And I find myself in the same situation as those religious leaders that I encountered as a child. I couldn't answer. Oh, you didn't have the answers. I didn't have the answer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it wasn't that I thought the questions were inappropriate and it wasn't that I, but I, I didn't have the answer. Right. And I also didn't, you know, I still understood that some of those answers they can only find out for themselves, but I didn't even know how to hold space for them to find those answers. All I could do was say, you could come to my class, you could come with me. But I was a person who had always been comfortable going into any space. It didn't matter the race of the people, it didn't matter the ethnicity, it didn't matter the gender or the nationality or the sexual orientation. I could hang with you. We could do things, whatever, you know, like I can do it. 
a lot of people in this country don't have that experience. They don't feel comfortable going into spaces that are not already filled with people that look like them or vote like them or talk like them or experience the world they, the way they do. Yeah. Like that's really uncomfortable. It's, it's sometimes people think that it's more uncomfortable than dealing with their own pain. So they avoid it. So here I am asking these 50, 60 year old black men and women to come with me to a class in River Oaks, which in Houston is the neighborhood. I mean, the best reference place point that I can say for somebody that isn't familiar with it is that remember the whole Enron scandal? Yeah. So the executives for Enron lived at the end of my block when I lived in River Oaks. Oh, wow. And the studio that I went to was in walking distance of where I lived. So I'm asking people to, I mean, it was essentially like asking people to go to the different mall. Yeah. Right. And now not to go to the mall that's most convenient to you, but to go to the mall that's inconvenient to you. Yeah. And I, and so I, so I didn't have the answers to the question and I also didn't know how to hold space. I only knew what I did and I only knew what worked for me and I didn't even know why that worked. Hmm. And I didn't even have an understanding of context that the physical practice of yoga is a combination of the fourth and the fifth lens of the third and fourth, sorry, third and fourth lens of yoga. Um, There's a little bit of the fifth in there as well, but asana, which is the seat for the pose and pranayama, which is the awareness of breath or the extension breath. So you put those two together and you get this Hatha yoga practice, which I say is this physical practice of yoga, regardless of the style or tradition. Yeah. And I had no real concept that that is in the philosophy where it is because it prepares you for deep seated meditation. It prepares you for contemplation, right? You get your body to be still, you get your mind to be still and you can focus and you can concentrate and you can meditate on this one single object, whether it's God or the sun or your parents as, um, uh, Krishnamacharya, Sri Krishnamacharya teacher said, you know, like just that focus. Mm-hmm. And in that way, the process of it is no different from any other contemplative practice, right? You focus, you concentrate, you meditate, or you pray. It's, but it's, it's funneling all your energy into this single divine point. And, and the ideal is to get absorbed by it. So if your single focus is love, there's a point when there is nothing else but love. Mm. And if your focus point is peace, then there is nothing but peace. And the opposite is true as well. If your focus point is hate and you know, there is a point when there is nothing but hate. Yeah. And so, you know, the physical practice of yoga is a way for, because we live in these worlds where like our bodies are moving and our minds are moving and, da, 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 and there's all this simulation and there's all this sensation, which is information coming at us from all different directions, including from inside of ourselves. And like, how do you get to that place where you don't have all that and you can choose? Cause like we all have the ability to focus which means we all have the ability to concentrate, which means we all have the ability to meditate. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's very simple. We all have the capacity to awaken. Right, we yeah. do. We do. But we also all make choices not to believe that. Yes. Right? So, so long story short in there is that um, I went through teacher training so that I could answer the questions or yeah. that I could direct people to the places where space could be held for them to answer the questions for themselves. And, but I took teacher training at a place where they taught you how to teach yoga and you had to teach. Yeah. And so then I was teaching and then I thought, well, what happens if I do this on purpose? 
And so what happens is that I've now been uh, teaching yoga for nine years. That's what happens when you do it on purpose. <laughs> well, and I can attest for myself, but I, I know plenty of other people that I've spoken with after classes <laughs> that the other thing that happens is you do hold that space and that touches people deeply. Um, and I mean, I often think that, you know, it was not a coincidence that it was your class that I walked into <laughs> when I wanted to learn yoga, basically so I could be a better rock climber. Like uh -huh. that, that was the extent of it um, for strength and balance and flexibility. Yeah. And then having these really like almost indescribable bodily experiences, particularly in Shavasana at the end of class. Mm -hmm. And then eventually talking to you and you introducing me to the full spectrum of the eight limbs. And um, I mean, you're, you're hella good at holding that space for people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I love to hear that. <laughs> well, I'm deeply grateful. Um, I, 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 I know. Say, though, yeah. But it also has to do with you coming into that space in that pre-contemplation phase. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I mean, and I had been doing contemplative prayer right. in my own tradition for a long time. And this has now become sort of integrated into my own practice. Um, what I was going to ask is, um, so there's a book that just came out, Louis Kamjathi, uh, who's a scholar at University of San Diego. It's kind of like the first full-length intro to contemplative studies um, mm. that he published. And in the early parts, he talks about, um, he calls it American yoga, which is mm -hmm. basically what I had in my mind when I came into your class, right? Mm -hmm. like, this is a physical practice that I can do to look better, be stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very caught up in a lot of that commercialization part of it. Yeah. But you obviously teach out of a, a depth of understanding of all eight limbs and the place that asana and pranayama lead into uh, or can lead into um, meditation. Do you think that, why do you think you, you see it that holistically? Is that rare or... I don't know what are <laughs> I think it's two things. I think it's it's one. It's that it's where I came from, right? It's all that stuff that we were talking about before in terms of my childhood and everything else. Like there was always I was always on that road. And then the other piece of it, so it's very similar to you coming into the studio where I was teaching the first time. You were already on that road for that possibility to be there. The door, yeah. the invitation was there. It's a question of do you want to walk in? Um, and the other piece of it is, and, and this other piece is what answers your question of, am I unique? Am I rare? No, there's lots of teachers that teach like that. Yeah. And in fact, that's, that's the thing that is different for me is that my first experience with yoga was that. My yeah. very first class, Robert Bustani explained this little bit that there was a philosophy and what it had to do with. And then my next teacher, who also was a student of Robert's, um, and my next several teachers also had that, that piece in there, right? So when I started yoga, there was always the philosophy. And yeah. 
when I started yoga, there was always the divine. And when I started yoga, there was always this other purpose other than to look good. Right. And I had some um, experiences very early on in yoga that also brought my awareness around to the fact that this is a healing art or this can be a healing art that Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the body. Yeah. You know, like I had uh, a class that in some ways, like even thinking of it now is so surreal and so unreal where like the whole room was just sobbing hysterically and just things happened in such a way that this is, this was the, like, this was just everybody's spontaneous reaction to what was happening. You were teaching or you were participating? Whoa. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, I was, this was early in me practicing. Wow. And there were several things that happened. It was the practice. It was the teacher. It was where each of us were individually in our own lives. And it was also that we got interrupted by a person who had experienced just so much trauma. Mm. And again, her choice having experienced all that trauma was to either stay curled up on the ground or to get up with an open heart. And she got up with an open heart and we got to experience that. And that was unplanned, unscripted, whatever. Um, It was huge and powerful and unreal. It's kind of hard to talk about it even all these years later. Um, But also part of what makes it hard to talk about is there's a lot of people that have those kinds of experiences. Um, And then there's a lot of people teachers who feel like they can manufacture those experiences. They can force you to have those emotional responses. And if you have those emotional responses, then you're going to heal and Mm. they're going to force that. Well, here's the thing. If you force me to have an emotional response around something that I'm not ready to deal with, I'm not even contemplating it. I'm here as you were to get better with some rock climbing and I'm going to force you to experience that. All I'm going to do is create more trauma. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which is the importance of your language of holding space yeah, to allow whatever, you know, the spirit is doing in the practice to arise. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, there's some stories told about the early days of centering prayer Mm -hmm. um, in this, I guess, seventies or maybe eighties, some of the early retreats. um, And they were doing long, long sits Mm -hmm. throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And there are similar stories of people, um, whole groups of people spontaneously, weeping or even laughing yeah. um, um, because collectively they were un, they were tapping into something that had been stored in the body yeah. um, and they were in a safe enough space to release it. Yeah. 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 And if we go through far enough, like even, you know, before I was talking about like what happens when you focus, concentrate, meditate, contemplate on peace or love or even joy and versus what happens with hate. Well, here's the thing. I believe um, a lot of other people believe as well that there, that what is in your heart, like what down deep in the heart is wisdom, is bodhi, is intellect, is wise, but is also loving and kind. Right. And so even if your external life experiences are such that you've internalized hate and you've internalized anger, and that's what you're sitting with because you don't have any choice at this point. I firmly believe that if you sit with it long enough, you're going to go through it. Mm. And what's on the other side you know, it's like um, Marcus Aurelius in his um, Emperor's Notebook says the obstacle is the way. So you run into the big boulder. Some people have the capacity to go over it. Some people have the capacity to go around it. Some people have the a capacity to go under it. Some people just turn around because it's in their way. And, oh, well, can't go where I wanted to go anymore. Now I'm going to go back where I was and suffer. But some people don't have a choice. They have to go through it. 
you know, we can wish for them not to go through it, but their, their circumstances are such where they have to go through it. It's like at the last section of the, of the yoga sutra starts off um, talking about how um, to get to that place, samadhi. Like some people are born with the veil between the conscious and the unconscious mind already lifted. Mm. Some people experience it through herbs. Some people experience it through practice, right? Um, there are people that um, are fortunate enough to, at birth, maybe all of us at birth, <laughs> have a real sense of the divine being everywhere, and then we lose it. But there's some people that have it at birth, and they are able to maintain it despite everything else that they go through. Mm. And there's no work, there's no effort, it just is, it is what it is, it just is, right? And I feel like on a certain level, a very small level, I recognize having that as a child, but I also recognize the possibility of losing it. And so that's where the blinders came, came in for me, right? That's where it was, nope, I'm gonna block that and I'm gonna block that so I can stay right here on this path. And I'm gonna block that and I'm gonna block that. Well, what happens, you can't see my hands when I'm doing it. What happens <laughs> is as you do that, the path gets so narrow that now everything else is going to hell. And you either maybe you fall off that narrow path or you, or you run into a brick wall. (laughs) Right. Right. Or you run into the brick wall. Right. Or you get to that place where there's the obstacle and you're like, well, I guess now the, the way is closed up behind me and there's the wall in front of me. I can't go anywhere. I just got to be here. And this sucks. So I'm just going to be here. But there is another, I mean, you can keep going. It's going to be painful. It's going to be messy. It's going to be icky. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be awful to go through it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like cleaning up a room. I always say this because I have times when my room is really messy. The <laughs> room is going to get messier before it gets cleaner. The desk is going to get messier before it gets cleaner. I mean, the only way that you can avoid that is if you sweep everything off the desk. Or if you're in like a spaceship and you open up the door and everything gets sucked out, right? That's the only way that it doesn't get messier before it gets better. Um, but if you sweep it all off or if you open up the shuttle doors and it goes all out into space, it just creates a mess somewhere else. Yeah. The only way not to create more mess is to deal with it. So you got to go through it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm pausing because I think that is, that is, um, it's just something that we need to hear in our time. Because I think it applies to the the conversation where we were before about the the moment of of potentially becoming woke, right? The pre pre contemplation, right. right? Where you're you're brought up short, you're arrested, stopped by an experience, right? And um, it's really easy to just flip back into uh, the the trance, right? Use Tara Brock's language again, right? Um, or to be like, all right, this sucks. I'm going to plant my ass right here right. in an asana and right. breathe right. and see what happens. And see what happens. And not, and Donna, Donna Falls is a poet and a yoga teacher and she has a poem, go in and in. And one of the lines is go in and in and turn away from nothing that you find. Yeah. I love that line. Yeah. It's at the end of that yoga nidra that you sent me years ago with Shar. Is it? Oh, yeah. Maybe he so, yeah. ends it with because I've done I've done that one a lot. Yeah. And I love that poem. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. yeah, but it's true. I mean, it is true regardless of what we're experiencing. It's true regardless of what we look like. It's regardless of what we think about our lives or what other people like look, think about our lives. It's regardless of what stories we're telling ourselves or what stories we're being told. There is some, you know, Jung, Carl Jung said shadow self, right? There's light self and there's shadow self and everything like that. We want to turn away from that shadow self. We want that shadow self to be somebody else and we'll make it somebody else. Yeah. And then we can turn away from that person, not realizing that what we're really doing is turning away from ourselves. Mm. I'm thinking about a, one of the earlier interviews I did with Cynthia Bergeault. I don't know if you know her stuff, but um, teacher in contemplative prayer, centering prayer tradition. Mm, yeah. I, I interviewed her for, I think, the second podcast. And I asked her to fill in the blank, contemplation is, and I, I was waiting for some like profound... It ended up being profound, but not in the way I expected. And she said, not for sissies. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that there's a danger right now in our kind of this fascination with mindfulness as a way or yoga or whatever it is mm-hmm. as like a stress reduction, you know, feel good technique um, at, a, at, a, at a surface kind of cheap pop psychology level. Right. Um, that is actually a lie because it really is not for sissies. Now, the deeper part of the story is that on the other side of that is real healing right. and real liberation, real health. Right. But we do people a disservice if we don't talk about the shadow, to use right. Jung's language. Right. right. And give people the tools and, and hold the space for them to go into that because that's the only way. That is the only way. Right. That is the only way. Yeah. And we're at a place where that is, where we are being confronted by that is the only way. But the we that's being confronted doesn't always recognize that. That's right. I encounter people all the time. I see them yelling at their kids. I see them um, yelling at each other. I see people, we had someone, I didn't actually physically witness this, but we had a member punch a staff member right after this new branch and there's so many times where I mean it's it's easy to pass judgment it's easy to think this that or the other it's easy to lay blame but one of the things that's become well I think it's clear to me now <laughs> but <laughs> I say one of the things that that feels very true to me is that there are people that don't know that they have another choice there are uh-huh. people that don't know another way right they don't know, know another way I mean I think about like when I stopped processing my hair and it was a process. So going from straightening my hair to getting Jerry curl. But when I got the Jerry curl, when that was all big in the eighties and everything, I wouldn't put the, the, I don't know if you remember the Jerry curl. Oh yeah. It was really greasy. Yeah. But when I first got the Jerry curl, I didn't put the grease in. So I would moisturize my hair, but not to the degree that it was supposed to be. So what ended up happening, I mean, I did maybe for a little while, but, but ultimately what ended up happening was I had what's re- what would be referred to as good hair. It was curly, but it wasn't nappy. It wasn't natural. Mm-hmm. And then I moved from that into just natural hair. Yeah. And like we mentioned before, you know, twisting it or braiding it or just having the fro or the Afro puffs or whatever. Um, and there was along the way people that in my circle of family and, and friends and everything that didn't really understand that or really accept that. I was going way off you know, down a road that didn't want to go off on and everything like that. Which, which well, part did they not accept when you let it be natural? I let it be natural. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because that was, 
you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Years ago, right. So, um, but I was having a conversation with a friend who grew up in Flint, Michigan, and she said she didn't know anybody growing up that had like natural hair. It wasn't even a thing. Mm. Like I knew people growing up, but I also knew all these other people that that wasn't presentable and that wasn't professional and everything like that. And if you wanted to have a real job, which IE was corporate America or academia or something like that, doctor yeah. or lawyer or something, um, you couldn't have your hair like that mm. at the time. Yeah. You know, but I did know, but I did know people that had natural hair. Yeah. She grew up in a upper middle. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure she grew up in an upper middle class black neighborhood where she didn't know that because it wasn't anybody around her. Yeah. So it wasn't even an option. That's what she said. It wasn't even an option. Hmm. So, um, the thing is that there's a lot of people and this has, again, nothing, this may have something to do. Well, no, this has nothing <laughs> to do. With, I was going to say, maybe this has something to do with, um, uh, your education and your income, but then that's just me being biased because I know for a fact that's not true. Mm. So the bottom line is it doesn't matter your race or your ethnicity or your gender or your social economic background or your um, sexual orientation. You have to know that there's another way in order to make that choice to believe, to behave in a different way. Yes. So it's like the kid that was just in the news today, which I'm still kind of sick about. Um, I don't know if you heard about this. This was, I think, also in Michigan. Oh, no. I've been in my cave all day in my oh, office. Yeah. So. so this uh, child, uh, middle school, high school, 14 years old, he missed the bus and was um, decided he was going to walk to school. That he was going to figure out a way to follow the route of the bus. And he got lost. And so he thought, well, I'll ring one of my neighbor's doors. I mean, and he's away from home, but he's going to ring one of the doors to ask directions to the school. And not only did they pull a gun on him because he was a, looked like a black man coming up ringing their doorbell, but they shot at him. What? Well, he was fine, but this was all recorded by their doorbell. I mean, there's some yeah. app thing, whatever. Yep. Yeah. It was all recorded. Not only him coming to ring the doorbell, not only him saying that he's asking for directions, but their response to that is recorded. Yeah. Right? Oh, God. I mean... I'm not glad that happened, but I am glad when you were telling that story, I thought you were going to tell me that he had been shot and killed. No, but he was so shot. I was like, but even just being, I'm just glad he's not killed. Yes. But I yes. Am, the fact that he, that, but, but the part of it is that like the fearful reaction that is automatic and right, not free right. on the part and, of that homeowner. Right. And I understand, um, like growing up definitely at 14 years old, I wouldn't have hesitated to, to ring a doorbell right? to ask directions. Because there's he's, a lot of people that wouldn't, but at that age wouldn't. Maybe they should because there's a lot of things that happen that at 14 you shouldn't be exposed to, right? Um, whether it's related to race or gender or whatever, there's a lot of things that could happen when you're a child out and about. Yeah. Um, that's really unfortunate that those, those conditions exist. But as a child, you shouldn't have to think about that. Right. And yet, there are kids all over this country, there's kids all over the world, they wouldn't have rung that doorbell because they would have been afraid of what was going to happen if they rang the doorbell. Even before seeing even the gun. Before, yeah. Even before seeing the gun. Yeah. Because of their race or because of their right. gender or because of their orientation, because of trauma that has already existed around them, they would not even ring that doorbell. 
Yeah. And on the, so they, they, you know, so, and then on the other side of it is the homeowners, right? This is their reaction to a black person ringing the doorbell. Yeah. Right. We can say that they should know better. We can say that they could know better. But there's also a very real possibility that they just don't know anything else but this festering thing that's inside of them that they haven't had any reason to deal with. Yeah. And now they're having to deal with it because one of them's sitting in jail. Yeah. But then even then, there's the invitation, but even then, the question is, do you blame it on everybody else? Do you blame it on society? Or do you take that invitation and sit for a moment and think, you know, like kids, like parents will tell kids, go sit down and think about what you did. <laughs> right? When was the last time you told your kids that? I was, I, know, I was just about to say, I've never done that. So I don't know. <laughs> okay. But yeah. some people do. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So literally, when was the last time you told? Oh, like, it's probably like that. Yeah. Within the last week. Yeah. Within the last week. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and kids, because that's what their parents tell them, they go and they sit down and they think about what they did. They contemplate. Yeah. Right? Even if we don't tell them to do that, we are telling them to do that. On the flip side, we have all kinds of bad behavior from us adults right now, and nobody's telling us to go sit down and think about what we did. So maybe that's what the contemplative teacher has to do. That is exactly what the contemplative teacher You has to do. go find your mat and sit. <laughs> and your cushion. Yeah. And your pew. That's right. That's yeah. right. And your, and your rug. And it's not, and it's not a punishment. Yeah. I mean, heaven help us. It's not a punishment. It's a reward. It's grace. It is. Yeah. It's absolutely grace. It is absolutely grace to be able to do that. And especially, and, and if you, and for anyone that doesn't recognize that that's grace, consider the fact that if you're listening to this podcast, there's a very good chance that you can find someplace, even if it's your bathroom, because you have toddlers, you can find someplace that you can sit for five minutes in relative peace and quiet. And there's no mortar exploding around you. There's no gunshots coming through your window. You're not, your, your belly is not rumbling because you haven't had anything to eat. Right? Yeah. It's not a punishment. Yeah. And, and we, so I, that is a key know. part of it too, is that, um, yeah, we need to have that space held on some level. Yeah. Uh, I was just talking with some people who are doing a mindfulness in this, in Minneapolis schools, actually, um, mm -hmm. a, a, a pilot project, um, at a couple schools. And one of the things that they found in terms of like cultural awareness with this was a basic mindfulness practice was that mm -hmm. there were certain kids that like sitting down and closing their eyes was not within their realm of possibility because to, to relax that much triggered the fear that this isn't safe right. because their home environments were so unsafe. Right. Um, right. And so then the teachers Instead of being like, well, what's wrong with these kids, right? right? Fortunately, the teachers had been trained in mindfulness first, so they were self-aware and right. saying, okay, you know, how can we work with this? Can you right. pick a spot on the wall right. to look at, right. right? I say close that, close your eyes if that's comfortable for you. Yeah. Yeah. But, and what, that's what I was going to get to too, is that, you know, there's all these 
these conditions that we don't, that a lot of us don't have to deal with. There are still people in this country that do have to deal with those things, but there's a lot of people that don't, not so yeah. much from border, but everything else. Sure. So we don't have to deal with that. But this is the other piece of that is that there are people that are sitting and practicing and praying, even though they're having to do with those things. Yeah. They are thinking about what did I do? What I'm going to do from a contemplative standpoint, even dealing with all that distraction. Yeah. Right. So then why don't we, we have no excuse. We have no excuse. Yeah. We have no excuse. And yeah. like you said, it's not a, you don't do it because you have to, or because somebody's telling you that you have to, or you or should. Yeah. Yeah. That it, it's an invitation to, to grace. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Unless you come from a background where you believe that, um, we're all sinners and we're going through this experience as a punishment. Yeah. I think that's a real challenge. It, but the thing is though, if you believe that, then okay, this is part of your punishment. Sit. <laughs> okay. I love that. You turned it on its head. That's not what I thought you were going to say, but no, you're right. Yeah. If that's, if, if you believe it as a punishment, then I mean, it says in the Bible, be still. And know right? that I'm God. Exactly. And here's the next piece of that. That language appears in so many sacred texts in so many different faiths. And so if you believe that we're, you know, original sin and we're all flawed and, and we're, you know, there's only one way, fine, that's your way, but you still have to sit and you still have to breathe. Yeah. You still have to accept that invitation. I was talking to a friend the other day about how um, when I was growing up, there was a point in the church where we always said the doors of the, or the, the minister or the priest would say, the doors of the church are open. And they were literally open, but they would say that every time, every, every service, the doors of the church are open, the doors of the church are open. And I was like um, talking about how I don't think that everybody heard that growing up, but I know that everybody's not hearing that now. And it's not just the church. And yes, sometimes doors are locked. Yeah. Literally locked because of all the other mayhem that's going on or whatever. But the doors of your heart are open. You can block it. You can hide it. You can shield it. You can walk away from it. But it's still open. And it's still waiting for you to walk in. I'm recognizing that you probably have to go get ready for your class soon. Um, okay. I have a couple more. If do you have time? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Um, before you were talking about um, the, in the eight limbs, as you move through the, the, the full uh, range towards yeah. me concentration, meditation and, and Samadhi yeah. and that, that, that sort of one point and that you, you become one with whatever that, that point is that you focus yeah. on. So I wanted to ask you, I think ultimately what, even if you, whether you use God language or divine language or not, depending on your tradition and what you're comfortable with. And I don't mean you, I mean, everybody listening, right, right. that ultimately whatever that is, it's sort of unnameable, right? right. Ultimately. Right. And yet we have texts and traditions and language right. for talking about that. I wanted to ask you, at today, yeah. how would you describe that point for you? 
that point. Where are you focused in your practice, in your teaching? Um, I'm trying to figure out if I understand the question. Uh, then we'll give an answer that makes sense. Um, so <laughs> I will have to say. Or maybe another way to put it is, what are you seeking union with? Everything. Everybody. Like to me, God is everywhere and God is everything and God is, and God is in everything. God is in everyone. And so my focus is on being able to recognize that. So that veil being lifted so that I'm not thinking that I'm um, so different from somebody else that I can't have a meal with them or I can't sit next to them on the train. And it could be something so little. Can I, I tell you a story about something so little? Yeah. So, you know, I went to Rice and uh, there's a lot of schools in Texas. There's a lot of universities in Texas. And so most people, when they think about Texas, especially up here, ironically, they think about University of Texas in Austin. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people from Minnesota that go down, they spend their four, three, four, five years at UT Austin, and then they come back to Minnesota. And that's the only time that they leave home. Uh, and the only time that they plan to leave home. So this yeah. is what they do. So I see burnt orange everywhere. And I see, you know, people with their Longhorns gear everywhere. In Minnesota, you mean? In Minnesota, yeah. Sorry, yeah. In Minnesota, which was shocking when I first got here because I didn't know that. Yeah. But now it's kind of like, okay, I see it, I see it, I see it. Well, you know, I went to Rice. It's not like, we, it wasn't a competition school. It was just, it, it's just another planet, right? <laughs> you have your, it's a tribal thing too, right? Every, all the schools, all the universities, they have this tribal conditioning going on. And especially because at Rice, there's no sororities or fraternities. Like if you're in, you're in. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, you know, there's um, residential colleges. And so there's a little bit of that, right? But mostly it's if you're in, you're in. And if you're out, you're out. You're outside of the bushes. You're outside of the hedges. You're out, you're out, right? So I have been conditioned to turn up my nose at somebody wearing burnt orange. It's ugly color. Why would you do that to that orange color? It's so awesome. So I get on the train one day, the light rail in, in Minneapolis, and there's a guy wearing a, a, a baseball cap from UT. And he's like looking around and everything like that. And his, the seat next to him is empty and he's smiling and saying hello, which is not the typical, as you know, typical reason. Yeah, that's not Minnesota. Well, yeah. Hello, whatever. I do it. And I say I do it because I'm from Texas. But here's this guy doing it. And I say hello, whatever. But I don't sit next to him. So here's this, you know, older white man wearing his UT hat. And here I am, this, uh, at this point, middle-aged, even though I don't look like it, black woman, sitting on this other seat. And as we're sitting there, um, there's, uh, the train gets more and more crowded, more and more crowded, more and more crowded. And uh, then um, this woman gets on the train and starts singing and preaching. The black woman gets on the train and starts singing and preaching. And she's directing her energy to everybody, but also trying to engage people that are really close to her. And everybody's like, not <laughs> because it's the crazy woman on the train that's preaching and singing. And can we please get to our stop so that we don't have to deal with this? Yeah. And the only people that are looking at her and paying attention to her are this man and I, but we're not close to her. So on a certain level, there's some safety there. So everybody else is trying to avoid eye contact, trying to like answer her just to shut down. Cause it's that polite thing to do. 
And I'm thinking in my head, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be that in 20 years. Like, I'm going to be that woman that gets on the train and sings and preaches and everything. And everybody avoids contact or whatever. Just do it in Sanskrit. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, 20 years, I'd be doing some kirtan on the train. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so, like, I had that moment of recognition that this guy and I could have made a connection, but because of his hat, I didn't sit next to him. I mean, this woman gets on and everybody is trying to avoid her. And he and I are pretty far away, but we're connecting to her and honoring what she's doing. But we also have that safety of distance. So the man gets off the train at government center and I get off the train at the next stop. And when I got off the train, I, I saw that he had left his lunch bag. Hmm. And it's crowded. Like, it's seriously crowded. I can't even remember why it was so crowded, but it was seriously crowded. So I grab his lunch bag, and I have this in my head that I'm going to somehow walk to the other station, find this guy in Government Plaza, and give him it back. <laughs> and I'm trying to decide, is it better if I, like, take the train, or is it better if I walk? Like, what's going to be the most expedient way to do this? And how am I get? like, I don't know that anything about this man other than that he's a big, middle-aged white guy wearing a UT. <laughs> That's all I know, but I'm somehow going to get his, get him his, uh, his lunch bag. And so I'm thinking about it and considering contemplating getting on this next train that's going back to the other station. And I look and through the crowd, cause he's a tall guy. So above the heads of everybody else, I see this guy walking from the other station, like just hoofing it. And I guess what he had planned to do. He was trying to catch the train. Well, he wasn't going to catch it. He, the only thing he could have hoped to do was get to the end of the line. Which oh. was more stops. So this is like, he's already walked two, three city blocks and he's just hoofing it. So I wave, but I'm in a sea of, of faces and he doesn't know me, right? So he's no reaction. I hold up his bag and he just like lights up. We have a little moment of exchange or whatever. So we don't exchange names. We go on about our business. But it could have easily been no connection because I hat. Yeah. So then uh, about a week or so later, you're in the, I'm in the Skyway, people are in the Skyway and it's lunchtime and everything like that. And Minneapolis, again, people are not making eye contact. I'm looking at people, smiling at people on a certain level, forcing people to make eye contact with me. But there's always that like, uh, <laughs> and I turn my head and I see this guy walking beside me with a UT Austin lanyard. And I was like, hey are you the guy that left his lunch back? He goes, are you the one that like, and then we finally exchanged names. We had one other moment where the next time we were on the train together, uh, we, I sat next to him and we had a conversation. Wow. Um, but it so easily could have gone another way because of a hat. Mm-hmm. Right. Or it could have so gone another way because of height or because of weight or because of skin color, or because of profession. Mm -hmm. Like, on a certain level, a hat seems really ridiculous. And mm -hmm. on a certain level, that disconnect because of skin color, or gender, or race, or religion seems really ridiculous. Yeah. So. But we attach meaning to that, and then it determines yep. our behavior and our choice, and our, the way we treat people. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so th this is going to totally switch gears, but it's something I've been wanting to ask you for a while. Yeah. Um, one of the things I loved about being in your class was that you have this like lighthearted, playful joyfulness to the way that you teach yeah. and practice. So, is I mean, is that that's probably intentional? But 
Do you think that's who you are or is that something that you've cultivated in your practice as a teacher? It's just me. It's just always been who I was. And it's, it comes again from that space of being a child and not having it conditioned out of you mm. and not having it beat out of you and not having it talked out of you or having that pressure out of you. It's just like, you know, I, and I've been very fortunate and those blinders that I put up or other people put up to shelter me, um, you know, I could have turned out really childlike in a different way. Um, if there'd been uh, a different kind of trauma and that was used to protect myself, but I didn't have that trauma. So I could just be me. I could just mm. be who I've always been. Uh, my mom says I'm more interesting now that I'm black. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, and she likes me better. And I said to her, like, we literally had this conversation about a, a, six months ago. And I said, does that mean that you didn't like me before? And she goes, no, but I just like you better now. But her point was more about you coming into who you truly are, I take yeah. it. Yeah. And not yeah. losing what I've always been. There's um, one of my favorite lines from the crucible is um, we are what we've always been in, in Salem. Right. The point um, from Proctor being that people didn't change. People didn't like, it wasn't like the, the craziness and everything that happens in the crucible um, with the Salem witch trials and everything like that. It wasn't that the people changed. They made a different choice about their behavior. Their, mm. The way that they manifested what they believed. Yeah. Um, and manifested and yeah, manifested what they believe. We can believe any number of things about ourselves and the world around us. And some of those things are true and some of those things are not true. But either way, we choose how we behave according to what we truly believe. Yeah. And so like I've always, like I said, I've always believed in God. I've always believed I was a child of God. I've always believed that that meant light and love. So, you know, I have days where I'm hard. I have days where there's when it's rough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all do. I just never I saw it when you were teaching because you probably don't lead with that. <laughs> I don't lead with that. Right, right. But part of that is also getting centered before you go into the space. Right. And checking yourself when you, and this isn't just as a teacher and this isn't just as a yogi, as a yogi um, this is everybody, you know. If you lead with what you believe, if you are centered and grounded in your faith and your system, and you really know what that is, like, not just that it's this thing, like, I know that there's a lot of people that are able to have blind faith. Um, I've never been that person. I've always thought, wow, it would be so cool to be that person <laughs> that had that. It would be so simple. Life would be so easy. But I didn't have that. And I think there's a lot of people that don't have that. And the problem that you get into, even when you have it, is that you don't ever question yeah. everything else that comes at you. So if you believe, if your faith is really simple, that's fine. But is it strong enough to withstand all the stuff that gets thrown at it that's not simple? And I think that it could be. But the problem is that... The, that you haven't answered the question of whether or not you're strong enough and simple enough. Mm. Right. So if you believe in love and loving all humankind, but then there's all this other stuff and all this other nuanced stuff that comes at you. At what point do you let go of that belief and start holding to somebody else's? I, it strikes me that something that is 
needed desperately in our time is that I think we often have like two poles that are opposite, but in, in reality, kind of the same thing, which is um, maybe an, I don't want to say overly simplistic, but um, not willing to wrestle with questions. So allowing one's faith tradition, whatever it is to be your excuse to not ask questions as opposed to a starting point for questioning on the one hand, or, you know, in an increasingly secular culture to just say, well, those questions don't even matter anymore in our day and age. And both are ways of avoiding the, uh, you know, the sitting down and struggling with whatever one's right. Even if you don't use the word faith or if you do. Right. Right. Mm. It's that spiritual bypass again. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, even if, I like Even if you consider it through the lens of politics, mm-hmm. I'm liberal, I'm progressive, therefore, the way I'm behaving in this situation is okay. I'm conservative, I'm Christian, I'm whatever, so then the way I'm behaving in this situation is okay. It just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we could just keep going with that. I, we could. But I know you have to teach. Um, yeah, you have to go. Okay. Yeah, a couple. Okay, so a couple like really quick fill in, yeah. the, fill in the blank. Okay. I already told you one of them. So okay. how would you answer the phrase contemplation is? Settling into the heart. Okay, so then the purpose. Settling into the heart oh. space. Settling into the heart space. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, a lot of. Uh, people that I've known and, and have worked with or, or learned from like to use the word heartfulness instead of mindfulness, Yeah, which yeah. is a way of speaking about dwelling in the heart space. Yeah. 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 So the, then the purpose of contemplation is all about the heart <laughs> wisdom and wisdom. Is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your contemplative experience? And I wrote this before you said heart, so. Joy. Huh. Just a, this is a total aside. Do you, do you know the Enneagram? Yeah. Are you a seven? No. Oh, dang it. <laughs> no. This is why you can never type somebody else. What well, is- and, and here's the thing though. I mean, like, I, I've, I've questioned what I am. And I, and I am going to go back and you guys, you provided a link after your uh, interview with Chris. Yeah. Um, and the one, I've not taken the one that you guys recommended. So I was going to try that. Oh, the Rizzo Hudson. Yeah. And see what happens. Well, okay. So what would you identify? Well, I usually come up one wing t- two or three wing two. One? Yeah. You and I, man. Oh, my God. Okay, now we have to have a whole other interview where we talk about All you have to do is go back and listen and think about what you said and think about how you felt in listening to to Chris about your own experience, like how you shared, how you framed your own experience. Yeah. About being a black teenager in the 70s and thinking you were Farrah Fawcett and Lindsay Wagner. Okay. That, that, Yeah. Okay, so now my meditate my next meditation, I'm gonna I'm gonna meditate as a young uh black woman in the seventies. It's gonna be awesome. Okay. Um okay, t- I know you're getting ready. What yeah. more? What's what do you hope for like the next generation of contemplative practice practitioners? 
that they recognize themselves in others. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a hope specifically for, say, the yoga tradition that you're teaching out of? Um, that we, um, hold on one second. <laughs> I'm going to step out of your camera for a second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, um, hold on. Go for it. Okay, I just had to step stand up. Um, so for the yoga tradition? Yeah. Um, that we find a way to come together and not be so decisive. You mean within the yoga community? Yeah, yeah. Huh. So there must be rifts that I don't know about. Eh, everywhere. Yeah, no, there are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, Myra, this was awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this. I should have known we'd have a hard time ending, <laughs> given some of our previous conversations. Yeah, that's true. Where I'd be at the end of a class and be like, I really have to go to work, but I'd way <laughs> rather stand here and talk to you about this. Yeah. So, all right, thanks. Uh, thank well, you. I look for, we'll talk again sometime soon. I hope so. All right, bye. Bye, take care. Have a good class. Thank you. Thanks again for listening, everybody. And a quick reminder that you can find the show notes and more information about Myra at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode six. That's the word episode and the number six, no spaces. And I'm always grateful for your help with online reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or elsewhere, and with donations to support the podcast. Until next time, I hope you continue to deepen your practice of awakening and transformation. Until then, be well. Be well.